What a joy it is for my wife and me to be here. And I told somebody this morning that we feel like we're coming home, Pastor, when we come here. And everything you've seen tonight is a result of leadership. And I'll tell you what, our fundamental churches are lacking, by and large, leadership across this country. But I hope you do not take uh, your staff for granted. I hope you pray for them and treat them monetarily so they'll want to stay here for a long time. Uh, let me quickly mention uh, the three books uh, that I brought with me that I've written, the book on prophecy, the book on my uh, autobiography, and also uh, the four crises of youth. Now, if you want any of those things, plus the flash drive, 33 of the most requested messages that I preach are on that flash drive. And if you get all three books, we give you my life story dramatized on Unshackled. All right, uh, I want to encourage you, if you do want things from the uh, table, do that before you do your fellowshipping. Let's stand, please. Take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Beginning, please, with verse 24. It says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Thank you very much. You may be seated. <clears throat> History tells us that the logical successor to the Pharaoh of Egypt would have been his son. In the event that Pharaoh did not have a son, his daughter's son would be the next Pharaoh of the land. Now, most of you are aware how Moses became Pharaoh's daughter's son. You remember that uh, Pharaoh's daughter was down by the river of Egypt taking her daily bath. Now, she didn't take a weekly bath like some do, but she took a daily bath. I had a roommate pastor that took a weekly bath. And folks, it was so terrible. We went to the dean of men and we said, can we throw him in the shower and scrub him down? We got permission to do that, and it really helped. Uh, uh, his socks were so bad that they'd almost stand up by himself. So she took a daily bath, not a weekly bath. Three fellas were riding down the road, and one fella said, somebody's deodorant's wearing off. One of the other fellas said, Ain't mine. I don't wear any. But anyway, she took a daily bath. As she was taking her daily bath, she heard some crying going on in the bulrushes. She went over, picked up this little baby boy, and adopted him as her very own. Now, I want to ask you, are there any young people who know what the name Moses means? Anybody? 
Yes. What does it mean? She decided she didn't know. Anybody know what the name Moses means? It means to draw out. So every time she addressed Moses by name in the palace, she was reminded that she drew him out of the water. Now make no mistake about it, folks. Moses was being groomed to be the next Pharaoh of the land. Acts 7 and verse 22 says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deed. You know what that means? That means that he wore the finest robes of his day, rode in the finest chariots of his day. On occasion, when he would walk out the door, trumpets would blow. People would fall down on their faces and do obeisance to him. But there came a time in Moses' life when he had a choice to make. Am I going to waste my life in the palace of the king as Pharaoh over the land of Egypt? Or am I going to let my life count for God? Tonight I'm speaking on this subject. What are you going to do with your life? There are three things that Moses had to decide upon from our text. Each one starts with the letter R. I wish I could claim credit for this, but the Holy Spirit is the one who deserves the credit. Notice, please, three times the letter R is used. First of all, verse 24, Moses, uh, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Number one, his refusal. I want to ask you, have you ever refused anything for the will of God? If you have not, you're not in the will of God. There comes a time when a young lady has to refuse a boyfriend. That boyfriend is saved. He reads his Bible every day. But that girl is called to the mission field. He's not. She's got to be willing to refuse for the will of God. There comes a time when a young man has to refuse a scholarship for the will of God. Someone says, well, Brother Comfort, I got a scholarship. Doesn't that prove it's the will of God? Where do you read that in the Bible? Don't you know the devil may give you a scholarship to keep you out of the will of God? Hey, there comes a time when a man who has a promotion in job, a raise in salary, but he goes out to California where they want to put him on a job. There's no good fundamental church there to put his children in. There's no good Christian school to put his children in. If he takes that raise and that promotion, he is doing the same thing that Lot did. He is making a life decision based on a material reason. I tell our young people, you do not base life decisions on a material reason. Lot went to Sodom. Why? A material reason. It was a good place to raise cattle. Dreadful place to rear children. However, Abraham went to Canaan. He didn't know what the land of Canaan was like. It was hundreds of miles away. 
He'd never been there. He didn't know what the land of Canaan was like for raising cattle. But I will tell you, his eyes were far above the land of Canaan. He looked for a city that had foundation whose builder and maker is God. My question tonight is, are you willing to refuse for the will of God? Luke 19 and verse 23, Jesus said, if any man will come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means to say no to your own will for the will of God. Luke 14 and verse 26, Jesus said, if any man come to me and hate not, his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and his sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, we've got to hate our father, mother, brothers, sisters, etc." It simply means this, that I am to love the will of God so much that the love for even my loved ones will seem as hatred in opposition to my love for the will of God. We have a young lady, Brother Bill, at school now. She's 29 years old. Years ago, she surrendered her life to serve God. Her daddy did not want her to. But finally, after struggling with the will of God for about five years, she said, I've got to obey God. 29 years old, she came to school. She's willing to refuse for the will of God. How about you? Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20, for I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. What does it mean to crucify yourself? means to say no to your own will for the will of God. Brother John talked about that in the Sunday school class my wife and I sat in. Galatians 6 and verse 14, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. So are you willing to refuse for the will of God? Paul had labored in Ephesus for three years. He was getting ready to leave Ephesus and go to Jerusalem. The Miletum elders said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They're liable to kill you. They're liable to put you in prison. You know what Paul said? Acts 20, 22 through 24. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. You know what he was saying? He was saying, listen, I have counted my own will as garbage for the will of God. Are you willing to do that? I had come back from Kenya, Africa in 1976. We'd been there in 75 in Kenya. And I was really burdened about getting labors to go to Kenya. I preached in Albuquerque, New Mexico. God looked down in that meeting and he saw Dr. Ralph Stewart, a PhD in science already in the mid-70s making a six-figure salary. God reached down and he said, Dr. Stewart, I don't want you wasting your life in a chemical laboratory. I want you in my service. You know what he did? He left his nets, 
went to Maranatha Baptist Bible College as a professor in biology making $15,000 a year. Last I heard, Ralph Stewart is pastoring a church in southern Illinois that he had started. He was willing to say no to his own will for the will of God. I preached that same year in Clovis, New Mexico. Bill Finch had spent 21 years in the military getting ready to get out, set up a garage, and work for himself as a mechanic. God reached down in that meeting and he said, Bill Finch, I don't want you wasting your life in a Chevrolet garage. I want you in my service. You know what he did? He left his nets, went on deputation, went to Kenya, Africa for 25 years, starting churches, helping missionaries with their mechanical problems. Are you willing to refuse? I preached in 1978 in Marshalltown, Iowa. God looked down and he saw Bob Matney, superintendent of the public school system, making a high-paying salary, a prestigious job. And God reached down and he said, Bob Matney, I don't want you wasting your life in the system I gave up on. I want you in my service. You know what he did, folks? He left his nets, went to Newington, Connecticut as a headmaster of a Christian school making half the salary he was making in Marshalltown. Pastor, I preached in that Christian school. 47 kids came down the aisle and surrendered for full-time Christian service. Bob Batney got up before his young people with tears in his eyes. He said, young people, five years ago in a Ron Comfort meeting, I did the same thing you're doing today. Why? Because if I spent my entire life in the public school, I could never see 47 young people surrender for full-time Christians. Are you willing to refuse? Now listen carefully. I'm not concerned about any young person who comes to me and says, Brother Comfort, I hope I find the will of God for my life. Here's a statement. Anybody that wants to know the will of God will find it. Did you get that? Anybody who wants to know the will of God will find it. That's Bible. John 7, 17. If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know. Now there are two things you need to know the will of God. Psalm 40 and verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So number one, you need a delight or a desire to know the will of God. Number two, you need to validate the will of God with the word of God. So Moses one day was in his room and he was looking out the window and he saw his Hebrew brothers under hard labor and bondage. They were bent over in the red-hot Egyptian sun, making bricks out of slime and mortar. And the Egyptians would come along with their scorpion-like whips and crack them on the back. Well, Moses looked at all that he could take. Finally, he went down, killed the Egyptian, and buried him in the sand. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it was the will of God for Moses to kill that Egyptian. But I am saying from that time forward, he could never be Pharaoh over the land of Egypt. 
He was turning his back on the palace for the will of God. Are you willing to refuse? All right, number two. Will you notice, please, verse 26? Number one, his refusal. Number two, his reproach. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the next day after he has killed the Egyptian, he looks out and he sees two Hebrew brothers fighting each other. So he goes down and he breaks them up and he says, wait a minute, you can fight each other. We're in this thing together. If we don't hang together, we're going to hang separately. You know what they said to him? They said, big shot, who made you a judge and a ruler over us? Who do you think you are? Hey, Moses, we saw what you did yesterday when you killed the Egyptian you're in big trouble with the Pharaoh. Ladies and gentlemen, that began a life of reproach that he was to experience 40 years until he stood on Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now get this, one month after he led the children of Israel over the Red Sea, one month later, at a place called Merah, the whole nation murmured against him. Numbers 14 and verse 22 says, they murmured against Moses 10 times. Now, whenever you meet that statement in the Bible, it simply means they did it over and over and over and over again. In uh, Exodus chapter 17, they came to a place called Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink. So you know what they did? They picked up stones and they started to stone Moses. How do you think Moses responded? Do you think he said, now wait a minute, you're taking this out on me and all I'm doing is obeying God. If you don't like it, take it out on God, don't take it out on me. You think he responded that way? You think he said, all right, do you want to stone me? Step out here one by one, put them up. We'll see who's going to stone whom. You think he did? No, I love Exodus 17 and verse 4. When they picked up stones to stone Moses, it says, and Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, that was his place of refuge. Ladies and gentlemen, the, in the front of my Bible, I have four words, no attack, no defense. Did you get that? No attack, no defense. And I believe that was Moses' attitude. I believe when they picked up stones to stone Moses, the devil reached down in Moses' ear and he said, Moses, you dumb fool. These people don't appreciate you. They murmured against you every step of the way. Uh, you're a fool. You could be in the palace of the king. But now these people don't appreciate you. As a matter of fact, I believe Deuteronomy 34 is the saddest chapter in the Old Testament. After 40 years of leading the children of Israel, God takes Moses up to Mount Nebo. And he says, now Moses, look over in the promised land. He said, you can see it, but your feet are not going to touch down in it in this life. Why? 
Moses, don't you remember? I told you to speak to the rock in the wilderness and you smote the rock, you disobeyed me, and because of that, you'll not get into the promised land. You know what I believe the devil said at that time? He said, Moses, <laughs> that's some God you've got there. For 40 years you led the children of Israel. They murmured against you almost every step of the way. And now you're God. That's some God you've got there, Moses. He won't even let you enter the promised land. You know what I believe Moses said? I believe he said, Satan, shut up. Shut up. Why? It's better to suffer reproach in the will of God than to sit in the palace of the king outside of the will of God. Get that. It's better to suffer reproach in the will of God than to sit in the palace of the king outside of the will of God. Tiger Woods entered the PGA in 1996. Since then, he has made $1.4 billion Dollars, B, billion. He has a $54 million private jet. He has a yacht that is 155 feet long. It cost him $25 million. He bought 10 acres in Jupiter, Florida, and built a mansion for $55 million. He takes his furniture with him to PGA events so he can be comfortable. Let me tell you something, folks. The best day he has had with all of his toys is worse than the worst day I've had in serving God. Now, the peer group will tell you, young people, if you surrender for the will of God, God's going to make you miserable. I'll tell you who will make you miserable. The peer group will make you miserable. And if you spend your life making money, you're going to die in misery. Better to suffer approach in the will of God than to sit in the palace of the king outside of the will of God. Philippians 1 and verse 29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12, if we suffer with him, what? We shall reign with him. If we deny him, He'll also deny us. Deny us what? He'll deny us reigning with him in the millennial reign. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 38. Who shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we're killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Ladies and gentlemen, I've never been able to understand how that because of a 35, 40-minute message, somebody comes down the aisle, he gets saved, his wife gets saved, his children get saved, the children go off to Bible college, train for the ministry, and they're serving God around the world. I'll tell you what, there is no money in the world that can replace the joy that I have seen that through the years. And I'll tell you this, in the 61 years I've been in evangelism, I've never gotten up in the morning and looked in the mirror and said, God, I'm so sorry you've called me to be an evangelist. 
I want you to know that I'm not enduring what I'm doing. Bless God, I am enjoying it. I sat in our home church with our granddaughter, my wife and I, and our preacher preached on the tribulation. After the service was over, I looked at Aubrey, our granddaughter, and I said, Aubrey, do you know why your grandmother and granddad are on the road trying to win people to Christ? Because of what we've heard tonight. We can't go down to Florida and sit in the sun and wait to die. There's no joy in that. But to see souls rescued from the burning, that's the joy. You know, every disciple that Jesus had died a martyr's death except John. John was boiled in hot seething oil, banished to the Isle of Patmos, where he died a slow, painful, agonizing death. James, a brother of our Lord, when he was 92, he was taken to prison, beaten with a leaded whip, and on his way to his execution, he led his executioner to Christ. And they both went out and died a martyr's death together. Matthew was slain with a large knife. Mark was dragged to death by the people of Alexandria. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. They got ready to crucify Peter. You know what Peter said? He said, no, I'm not worthy to die the way the Son of God did. So at Peter's own request, they crucified him upside down with his head pointing toward the ground. Young people, you know that's the origin of the so-called peace symbol or the broken cross. That's always been a symbol of anti-Christendom. When Titus and his Roman soldiers marched into Jerusalem in 70 AD, they carried the inverted or the broken cross. Always been a symbol of anti-Christendom. Pastor, no place I have ever been in my life except the open tomb of Christ affected me emotionally like being in the Mamertine prison. You go in the Mamertine prison in Rome and there's a stone floor. They would remove a grade, take a victim, throw him down to a dark, damp, dingy, dismal dungeon. On one, Paul was chained to a Roman soldier. On the other side, he was chained to a Roman cell. As Paul would lie there on the floor, he could watch the rats as they gnawed away at his feet. He could watch the lice as they crawled all over his body. You know what the guide told us? They said just before they cut off the head of the apostle Paul, he led 37 of the guards to Jesus Christ. And as they cut off the head of the apostle Paul, he was singing the praise of God. They brought Peter, James, and John into the Sanhedrin and they threatened them. They said, you better shut your mouth about this man, Jesus. If you don't, we'll cut your body to rivets with the cat of nine tails. You know what they said, Acts 4 and verse 20? We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Go ahead and beat us. We're still gonna preach about Jesus. Acts chapter five, this time they were not threatened. This time they were beaten. You know how they did that? They tied their hands through a ring. They tied their legs through a ring so their bodies were spread eagle. They took the leaded whip and beat them 13 times on the right side, 13 times in the center, 
13 times on the left side. Jewish law forbid any man to be beaten more than 40 stripes. They always stopped at 39 to be within the law. But I want you to get this picture. Here Peter, James, and John leave the Sanhedrin, their bodies gushing blood. But you know what they were doing? They were singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Acts chapter 4 and verse 5 and verse 41, and they departed from the presence of the council, what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. When they killed a Christian, they said, boy, these Christians really know how to die. And the more they persecuted the Christians, the more they grew and multiplied. Acts chapter 7, James says, or, or uh, Philip has his head cut off. But in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, it says, they that were scattered whenever we're preaching the word, that's Stephen. Acts chapter 12, James has his head cut off. But Acts 12 and verse 24 says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. I think about Polycarp, the aged pastor of the church at Smyrna. When he was well in his 90s, he was taken to the proconsul, urged to renounce his faith in Christ and escape martyrdom. Polycarp came out with these famous words. He said, 80 and six years have I served the Lord Christ and he's never done me anything but good. How then can I renounce my king and my savior? They let him to be nailed to the stake. As they pounded, started to pound the 10-inch spikes, Polycarp said, no, no. He said, you don't have to nail me to the stake to secure my remaining in the fire. The same God that gave me grace to come to the fire will give me grace to remain in the fire without being nailed to the stake. That day they doused his body with pitch and his body became a human torch. You know what Polycarp was heard praying in his dying moments? He prayed, I thank thee, O God, that thou hast preserved me until this time and given me the opportunity of taking my place among the martyrs. They had something, didn't they? Number one, Moses' refusal. Number two, his reproach. But notice, please, the latter part of verse 26. Why? because of his reward. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches and the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Matthew 5, 11 through 13. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before thee. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Moses' eyes were on the finish line. And those disturbances on the periphery didn't bother him. He was waiting to cross that finish line. In closing, the reward is threefold. Number one, there's a well done when we cross the finish line. Second Timothy 4, 6, 8, Paul said, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not to me only, 
but unto all them also that love his appearing. Now, you remember I told you God didn't let Moses go in the promised land in this lifetime. All right, come with me about 1,500 years later. And I believe God came to Moses and he said, Moses, he said, you know, I didn't let you go into the promised land in your lifetime. But I believe he said, Moses, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'm going to take you to the promised land with me now. So Peter, James, and John go up to the mountain of transfiguration. Who do they see? Moses and Elijah. Well done, Moses. Every September 14th, I put in my journal these words. Thank you, dear God, for another year of faithful service and fruitful service. And my ultimate desire is that when I cross that finish line, there'll be no moral blemishes on my body. And I'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So there's a well done. Number two, there's a peace we have in our heart. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. John 16 and verse 33, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. I preached in Atlanta, Georgia about 40 years ago and there was a Georgia Tech student that came to me and he said, Brother Comfort, he said, somebody gave me your tape on the holiness of God. He said, I listened to it. He said, it was different than anything that I had ever heard or imagined. He said, I sat there with my mouth open. When it finished playing, I turned it over, put it back in, and listened to it the second time. He said, when it finished the second time, I was on my knees asking God to save me. Well, that was 40 years ago, folks. About four years ago, I preached for Tim Mason in Georgia. And uh, a handsome man after the morning Sunday school hour on Sunday came in. He told him, he said, I want to talk to Brother Comfort. I don't want to talk to him before he preaches because I don't want him to get his mind off his preaching. But after the service, this man, Dr. Will Moody, came to me and he introduced himself. I'm Dr. Will Moody. I said, where do I remember you from? He said, well, don't you remember about 35 years ago or so, a medical student from Georgia Tech told you that he had heard your message on the holiness of God and he was saved? He reached in his pocket and he said, here's that tape. I said, Dr. Moody, I said, that's uh, out of date. I said, let me give you a CD to update it. He said, you couldn't pay me enough money to get this tape. I said, well, Dr. Moody, I'd like to know about the circumstances surrounding your salvation. I said, can we get together for lunch this week and you give me your testimony? He said, sure. On Tuesday, he had 11 surgeries. One of the greatest surgeons in Georgia. On Wednesday, we got together. I said, now, Dr. Moody, would you give me your testimony of how you got saved, what were the circumstances surrounding it. He said, I was in my frat house in Georgia Tech. My frat brothers were in the next room smoking pot and drinking liquor. But he said, you know what I was doing? 
He said, I was on my knees. I had my Bible open and I said, God, please send somebody along to show me how to be saved. When he got up from his knees, a knock came to the door. He went to the door. Here was a young man with a, from a college ministry. His name was Rich. Rich had come around those fellas smoking pot and drinking liquor. And he knocked on Dr. Moody's door. And he said, uh, Dr. Moody, uh, you want to be saved? He said, oh, yes. I've been praying that God would send somebody along and show me how to be saved. Can you show me how to be saved? He said, yes, I can. But he said, I'll tell you what. I'd like for you to listen to this tape first, and then I'll come back and lead you to Christ. So Dr. Moody listened to it twice, didn't have to be told how to be saved. He got saved after listening to it twice. And before we left that lunch, he looked at me and he said, now, Brother Comfort, I hope this will not offend you, but I'd like to give you a gift. He gave me an envelope. You know what was in that envelope? 16 $100 bills. It didn't offend me, preacher. You know what? That money has been spent a long time ago. But you know what Dr. Moody told me? He said, Brother Comfort, my wife got saved. My children got saved. They're in Christian colleges now training to serve the Lord. That money has been long gone, but that testimony will go with me to the grave. There's the well done. There's the peace we have in our heart finally. Luke 18, 28 through 30, Peter came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, we've left all and followed you. What are we going to get out of it? He said, you'll not only get in the life to come, but in this life you'll get manifold more. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 30, he said, no man's left father, mother, house, and lands, wives, children, but what I'll multiply unto you a hundredfold. And God began to do that to me as a 15-year-old boy. My brother was on his way downtown in Panama City, Florida on a Sunday in the military. He was going to get drunk with his buddy. They sat in an outdoor service, and my brother got saved that day. Right away, my brother got concerned. He didn't go downtown and get drunk. He went back to the barracks, wrote his little brother and his mom and dad, and he said, Mom and Dad, Ronnie, I've been saved. You need to have what I have. We had moved back from Asheville to Elmira, New York that summer, and Billy had spent one semester at Bob Jones University. By the way, Bob Jones University is not what it is, was today. Not what it is today. But anyway... He had me out on the streets of Elmira passing out tracks, having street meetings. We'd take the wordless book and lead kids to Christ. And so we were in a street meeting and the police came and stopped us. He said, boys, you can't do this. You've got to have a permit in order to have a street meeting. Well, across the street was the Elmira Rescue Mission. Al Shaw was the superintendent. He saw our plight. So he came over and he said to my brother, young man, he said, I've heard your preaching. I like it. He said, I was saved under that kind of preaching. I was a debauched drunkard. 
and God saved me through the kind of message you preach. He said, you can't preach on the street, but you can transfer it over there to the rescue mission. So he said, Billy, he said, I want you to preach for three weeks. Ronnie, I want you to do the singing. So we did for three weeks. During that time, I came to my dad and I said, Dad, God saved me. He's called me to preach. And I said, Dad, if you'll let me, I'll go to Bob Jones Academy as a sophomore in high school and I'll begin to prepare to preach. He said, son, you're a fool. I had sung in the nightclubs, the stage, TV, radio from the age of seven to 15 on a Sunday night. Instead of being in a service like this, I was in a nightclub singing somewhere. Always had to be accompanied by my dad or my granddad because I was underage. And I said, Dad, that's all in the past. I don't care about that anymore. And I said, if you'll let me, I'll go to Bob Jones Academy and I'll begin to prepare to preach. He said, son, you can go. But if you go, I will not send you one penny. The three years I was in the academy, it cost the same as the university. My daddy sent me zero. The four years I was in college, one weekend dad broke his word and he sent me $5. In seven years, he sent me $5. The last night of that rescue mission meeting, Al Shaw called me to the platform and said, Ronnie, he said, the offerings for the three weeks have been $150. He said, I have a check that is made out to you and I want you to go to Bob Jones Academy and begin to prepare to preach. He said, you're my son in the faith. God multiplied unto me a daddy. My freshman year in college, I had a roommate, Billy Shelton, Billy lived in the dorm. His parents lived in Greenville. I believe God put Billy in the dorm for my benefit. One day, Billy came to me and he said, Ron, he said, I've told my mom and dad about you. They want to meet you. Would you like to go home and eat supper with us this week? I said, I'd be glad to. Right away, God established a wonderful relationship with mom and dad Shelton and me. They said, Ron, as long as you're at Bob Jones, every weekend you'll go to the mailbox and you'll find an envelope from the Sheltons to get your incidentals. Many times they sent me a check to apply to my room board and tuition. Again, God multiplying to me a mom and a dad. After my freshman year in college, my buddy Fred Skeels came to me. Fred, six feet four, 210 pounds, he said, Ron, my dad's involved in the lumber business in Roseburg, Oregon. We can get you a job in the lumber mill if you'll come and stay in our house this summer. My mom and dad want you to. So I stayed with the Skills for three summers. And one day, Burl Skills came to me and he said, Ronnie, he said, we have two daughters, Kathy and Karen. He said, we feel like we've got a little son along with Freddie. We feel like you're our son. And if you have a need, don't hesitate to call on mom and dad's skills. You know, they, when my girls were growing up, every Christmas they would send us a check and a letter. And they would say, divide this check into three ways for our grandchildren 
and two ways for our children, my wife and me. They sent us money to go from Clarksburg, West Virginia to Roseburg, Oregon. They flown from Roseburg to Phoenix, Roseburg to Tampa to be with us. I believe if tomorrow I had a need and they were living, I believe I could call Dad Skeels and say, Dad, I need $10,000. Can I borrow $10,000 from you? I believe a check would be in the mail the next day for $10,000. Now, why did God do that? My first year in the academy, after three months, I came home on uh, Christmas break. And nine out of 10 days, my parents were drunk. Nine out of 10 days. The last night I was home was the longest night of my life. We heated our house with oil. And so the stove had run out of oil. There was no heat in the house. Mom and dad did not come home all night long. I sat in a chair with covers covered up. It was so cold I could see my breath. And as I sat there in that chair rocking and weeping, I said, nine out of 10 days, my parents have been drunk. Last night I'm home. They haven't even come home to be with me. The next morning, I waited around the house, just hoping and praying they would come home, kiss me goodbye, and tell me they loved me. Finally, 10 o'clock came, and I knew I had to go out to the highway and hitchhike back to Greenville. I stood on the side of the road with my thumb out, and I was weeping. I thought, nine out of 10 days, my parents have been drunk. Last night I'm home. They haven't even come home to be with me. The last morning, they haven't even come home to kiss me goodbye and tell me they love me. And as I stood there on the side of the road with my thumb out, I was weeping. But let me tell you something, folks. God Almighty has made that up to me a hundredfold times. No man's left father, mother, house, and lands, wise children but will I multiply unto you a hundredfold. Now, some of you tonight are struggling with the will of God. On the one hand, it's your will. On the other hand, it's the will of God. You're like the poet. I said, let me walk in the fields. He said, no, walk in the town. I said, but there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers, but a crown. I said, but the sky is dark and there's nothing but noise and din. He wept as he sent me back. There's more, he said, there's sin. I said, but I'll miss the light and friends will miss me, they say. He said, choose today whether I am the issue or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, is it hard to decide? Twill not seem so hard in heaven who have followed the steps of your guide. I took one look at the fields, then cast my face toward the town. He said, my child, will you yield? Will you give up the flowers for the crown? Then into my hand went his, and into my heart came he. And now I walk in the light divine, the path I had feared to see. Hallelujah for the will of God. Are you willing to refuse? His refusal, his reproach, but the bottom line, 
his reward. Let's bow our heads in prayer.